Welcome to the Ruby Book Club podcast, where we read an hour of a Ruby book each week and dissect it with you. I'm Saran, developer and founder of Code Newbie. I'm Nadia, developer and director at Ignition Works. So we're currently reading Refactoring, the Ruby edition. Today we're going to finish off chapter two, Principles in Refactoring. This covers problems with refactoring, when you shouldn't refactor, and how refactoring ties into design. And remember that you can follow us on Twitter at Ruby Book Club. And if you're reading along and you're on Twitter, tweet at us and let us know what you think of the book so far. We'd love to hear from you. How did you find this week's reading, Saron? I did not like it, Nadia. That is how I found it. Um, Tell me more. (laughs) Yeah, I felt like it was... There, as you said, you know, before we started recording, there's only so many ways you can say the same thing. And it feels like we're still on the let's convince the reader that refactoring is important part of the book. And it just it wasn't, you know, considering that you and I understand that already. And we picked up this book specifically because we wanted to learn refactoring. It was frustrating to hear the same argument presented in a number of different ways. So. I assume this part of the book is valuable for some people who maybe aren't convinced. Um, And, you know, maybe it was maybe it's a toolkit for how you can defend against the non-believer when that time comes for you. You know, like I'm sure there's value to someone out there. Uh, But for me, I was just I was really excited by that first movie theater example. And I was really looking forward to digging into another code sample and really getting into it and unpacking it and exploring it. And so to hear, you know, to read another 10 pages of similar you know, similar arguments of here's another reason why refactoring is awesome was just frustrating. Yes. And I think I read chapter two all in one sitting. And so I had more of that sense of, okay, no, I, I understand it. I get it. How many, how many more reasons can we have? But I think it was putting, yeah. remembering to put myself in the mindset of someone who maybe isn't convinced. And obviously this would be super valuable. Mm-hmm. So let's dig in. We are starting with indirection and refactoring. So this is really interesting because I I don't think I really thought of indirection as its own its own little thing that was worthy of a whole section mm-hmm. in the book for sure. Uh, but one thing that we start off with is a quote that says, "Computer science is the discipline that believes all problems can be solved with one more layer of indirection," and that was by Dennis DeBruyler. And I thought that was really interesting. I I never. I, I guess I didn't know that software engineers thought of indirection in that way. Was that new to you too? Or is that a familiar concept? Yeah, I, like you, didn't see it in that way. And again, I wasn't completely sure exactly what indirection was. Like, was indirection breaking bigger objects into smaller ones? Was it adding layers of abstraction? If you see what I mean. Yeah, I think it was, I think it's all of that. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's any place where the logic isn't all in one place and you're kind of switching directions to get to that other place. Okay. And so the quote is suggesting that developers like to, rather than try and bring everything into one place, like to find ways to go and fetch it from somewhere else or abstract away. Is that what we're saying? I think so. And to me, I guess the weird part is, I always saw indirection as not a goal, but just a side effect, Mm. you know, because we want smaller methods. That means that we have to send 
methods to different places to get to the logic that it needs. You know, we want to use encapsulation so we have different objects that have different responsibilities. And as such, a side effect of that is indirection. So to me, what was interesting and what was new was the idea that software engineers want indirection. Like, I didn't think we wanted it. I thought that was just the price that comes with you know, having to make things smaller and more manageable and easier to understand. Yeah, I guess I wonder if there's different types and qualities of indirection, because, for example, uh, it says here that refactoring tends to break big objects and big methods into several smaller ones. And now I'm thinking in terms of, you know, my object-oriented mindset, that's what we want to do, right? We want to find these smaller objects with clear defined responsibilities. But I thought part of the reason why we have all these, you know, these books around how to do that is because people struggle to do that, even though they strive to do that, or they don't see the value in doing that. So I wonder what kind of infatuation engineers have within direction that that Kent back here is referring to. Mm-hmm. So I actually looked up the uh, the definition and someone asked on Stack Overflow, they said, I read this quote in a book, I'm wondering if it was this book, uh, and they want to know, can someone explain that? What does level of indirection mean? And he, the person writes, uh, from what I understood, indirection is a fancy name for using a pointer of a value instead of the value itself. Please clarify this for me. And I think that's the same thing that we're talking about too, right? If we're sending it to another object or another method, then we're sending it to, mm-hmm. you know, we're calling something that calls something else. Um, and so the answer is, the answer that someone else wrote that was um, checkmarked and, and upvoted, uh, says that indirection is using something that uses something else in its broadest sense. So your example, using a pointer of the value instead of the value, fits this definition at one level. The pointer is the something and the value is the something else. Typically, there is something larger in scope. One, using a website to graphically display the data generated by an XML-based service. Here, the website is the something and hiding behind it is the data, which is the something else, which is interesting. Number two, using an operating system to access the display screen. Here are two layers, at least of indirection. The OS uses the screen driver, one something using a something else. Then the screen driver talks directly to the screen hardware, using it to make tiny dots of light here and there. The driver is the next something using the something else, which is the hardware. And then the third example they give is API, right? So API is the thing that deals with something. And so you're not having to understand that logic in your code itself. So I think all these examples fit the way that we're thinking about indirection, where it's, I don't need to know everything. I don't need to understand everything. There is something else that points to something else that can take care of some of that for me. Right. So it is a very broad concept. And in this section, we list out some of the ways that this is helpful. So we can share logic. So if we have a sub-method that's used in two different places, um, or if there's a superclass which is shared by subclasses, that's an example of sharing logic. You can also separate out intention and implementation. So this section says how, you know, we can choose the name of a class or a method, and that helps to reveal what we intend. And then it's the internals of the class or method which show how that intention is realized. So that's the implementation. But I was a bit confused by this paragraph because I feel like we always do that. Is is that in direction? Like we always try and choose intention revealing names. And then obviously the body of a class or a method shows how it's implemented. So am I missing something? Yeah, I don't. So I get that that is indirection. 
when that method is called from another method, mm-hmm. right? Because that first method that is doing the calling doesn't know about the implementation. It just has this pointer thing, this intentionally named pointer thing. And that pointer thing is the one that has the implementation. So the moment where the method is called, that I think mm-hmm. is when the interaction actually happens. But I agree. I don't see how simply naming something as intention revealing makes it indirection. Maybe it's saying that within the implementation, you can have indirection, but the name helps to explain what the overall intention is. Maybe. Maybe. Anyway, and then we have two further advantages. So one is that we can isolate change. So if we use an object in two different places and we want to change the behavior in one of the two cases, then we can do things like use a subclass and make customizations to the one case that we want to change and leave the other case as is. And there's also this idea of encoding conditional logic. And I think this touches on some of the object-oriented stuff we've discussed before um, and polymorphism where you can have objects of different types but send the same message and it would respond accordingly. Mm -hmm. So the rest of the section talks about indirection and specifically about either adding it or removing it. And this is one of those times where I feel like there are more words here than there need to be to make the point. But basically it says that there's this idea of the refactoring game. And one part of the game is about adding indirection, encapsulating things, adding subclasses, and we talked about some of these examples earlier. But the other rarer form of playing the refactoring game is removing. So it's about removing some of those methods that you don't actually need. It's about removing some of those classes or components uh, that aren't actually as valuable as you think they are, as you thought they were at least when you first coded it. And so this idea of removing indirection uh, is also a potentially valuable part of the refactoring process. I think one of the reasons why I had a problem with this section is because there were no concrete examples. Yeah, yeah. And indirection is such a broad term that I really don't know what this looks like in practice. And it's like, in some cases, you want to be adding it. In some cases, you want to be removing it. Right, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, it's not really something you can disagree with. It's like, sure, you know, we gotta, we gotta kind of see it to really make much sense of it, Yeah. So next we talk about the problems with refactoring, and there are a couple that we go into. Uh, One of them is this idea of the changing interface, which I thought was, I think we've we've talked about this before, um, and is pretty common. You know, we don't want to, we don't want to change the interface as much as possible, but sometimes there are situations when we do need to do that, when we need to, and we've, we did this actually in the, um, the movie store example when we had new methods that we used and we used the old methods as forwarding methods and then we found all the places where we were using the forwarding method and then we removed that and cleaned it up. So, you know, we've seen we've seen an example where we don't want to start by changing the interface, but if we are able to and we can make our code nicer and cleaner, then we are encouraged to. But this talks about a third type of interface, which is the published interface which I don't think I've heard of that phrase of the published interface before, but this is a step beyond a public interface when you might have something like an API and there are tons of developers around the world who are using and relying on some of these method calls. And that is when things get a little bit more complicated. Yes, I like this distinction of private, public and published because sometimes mm-hmm. you can you can do some software development and you have a public interface by you know by definition but not that many people are using it so it's really not that costly to change it but Mm -hmm. we're talking about like the real world scenario like you said um and so i love how so you've got two suggestions here one is you know if you do change a published interface then you've got to somehow retain both the old and the new one because 
you need to give your users a chance to react to the change or, you know, give them some notice that the published interface is going to be deprecated. And so, and you definitely don't want to duplicate, so copy the method body, uh, because then you're just going to end up into, into all sorts of trouble. But then there's also this alternative, which is don't publish the interface. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so... Um, obviously that came with that came with a bit of a clarification which was obviously you're going to have published interfaces but make sure that you don't just publish them willy-nilly do you have that term willy-nilly yes I love that term okay oh great yeah you don't just publish them willy-nilly you you, they're serious decisions and it's like okay we're putting this out there because the cost of change is quite high and so I like that just trying to say like if you are publishing things that people are going to use really do think about it because if you need to change them later it's going to be painful for you and all your users Mm -hmm. yep exactly And then next we talk about databases and how one of the possible problems you might run into is that refactoring is often tied to the database. And it talks about how sometimes your programs might be tightly coupled to the database schema and you might need to work around that. Uh, And this was a pretty short section. It mentions Mm -hmm. things in passing, like using temporary tables to preserve the data. Uh, It also talks about creating a possible separate layer of software between your object model and your database model, which can be a little tricky, but isolating it that way gives you a little bit more protection so that you can refactor a little bit easier. Um, So it mentioned those, and then it says that if you want more information to read the book, Refactoring Databases, to give more... uh, more context on what how that might look. Great. And then the next one that we talk about are design changes. So if we have design changes that are difficult to refactor. So there are some situations where if you've made a design change and you want to move, it's very, very costly. So the authors say that the choice of framework and integration architecture is not one that should be made lightly. But on the other hand, you can't always be um approaching it tentatively once you have made a decision it's important that you keep moving forward and and have faith that if you do need to make changes if you've got the solid refactoring techniques then you'll be fine Mm -hmm. um but it's also good to as you're going over what design alternatives say well if this turns out to be the wrong thing and i want to switch to this other thing how difficult would it be to refactor Mm -hmm. and it's this idea of if it does seem that it's something easy and straightforward, then you don't need to worry about the choice right now. Um, just pick the simplest design and go with that. So because you might not need, you most likely won't need the more complex thing later on. Mm-hmm. And it's always this thing that I talk about a lot with Theo, which is cheap today, expensive tomorrow, or mm-hmm. cheap tomorrow, expensive today. It, as a way, it's a really useful way to just make decisions in general. Because if something is going to be, is cheap today, but it's also going to be cheap in the future, then you might as well put it off. If something's, cheap today but it's going to be expensive in the future then definitely do it today Mm. um if something's going to be expensive now but you know but and expensive later on then probably just do it now if it's something you need to do and it's just using this these these sort of toggles to make decisions i like that i like uh, yeah so i like it here when it basically says look if you've got two decisions and it's going to be cheap to refactor it later on then just go with the simplest one because as we always see as we do our readings, we're really bad at guessing what we're going to need in the future. Yep. <laughs> and most likely we won't need to make a change. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. So then we talk about when shouldn't we refactor? Because so far we talk about how awesome refactoring is and how important it is, but there are a few times when it really should be avoided. And one of those examples is when you want to rewrite it instead, uh, which 
the way it's presented it's like obviously this is one of those the those are times <laughs> but i actually didn't think about that option at all the, i was the same and it yeah. actually made me laugh i was like oh yeah it was like a clear side is when you if you need to rewrite the code doesn't right. work i was yeah. like oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah same uh and so sometimes you'll look at a code base and it just doesn't make any sense and it's just so messed up and just so such a mess that it makes a lot more sense for you to just start from scratch than to fight it and refactor it and i think that is a hard decision to come to just figuring out because you know for me it would be the question of okay is it just that i don't understand it Mm -hmm. or is it actually hard for anyone to understand um and so that's one scenario is just deciding to rewrite it entirely Another one that it mentions, and this one I appreciate because it's just so realistic, is when you're really close to a deadline. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because refactoring does end up taking a little bit more time, sometimes you may not benefit from that refactoring until after the deadline is over, in which case there's kind of no point. So if time is a huge factor and a big issue, uh, consider not refactoring in order to meet that deadline and not make your bosses angry. And it does say that unless you do have a specific deadline, there's never an excuse to say, oh, mm-hmm. I'm not doing refactoring because I haven't got enough time because that's probably a sign that you do need to do refactoring right, right. Um, if you're putting it off like that. Yeah, and it made me wonder about the, I'm thinking mostly about the startup scenario, the startup situation of companies and places where mm-hmm. you're kind of always on a deadline, right? If you mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. six months for your company to last, there's like a permanent deadline all the time, every day, forever. So in that environment, how do you get out of this constant holy crap, I need to push features as fast as possible. Like, how do you break out of that cycle and justify refactoring if you're in a work environment that feels like you're always under pressure to meet a deadline? It's interesting you bring that up because Theo and I have been sort of fighting against that pressure as we've built up some of our own products and collaborated with other people who are used to working in that startup mentality of, well, we're always on a deadline. We've got to ship things fast. And we've we've had many interesting conversations with people around whether we're taking too long to do testing or not. Mm. And I've even gone back and forth on it myself. But I guess I one of the things I say to myself is that do it right now and it'll always be right. But if you're always on deadline, you'll never do it right. And eventually it will come and bite you and then it will be really costly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's just the sort of approach I've been going on. So even if it's a case where people have requested certain features, then we have um, taken our time and we felt the pressure and it does make us feel awkward um but we also haven't been in a situation where we've had like hundreds of thousands of users so we don't know what that kind of pressure feels like in terms of on our own stuff but we have felt that awkward pressure of "Mm, we could get this out in an hour but really we should test it properly and I guess the thing is that if you're building something that has value and your your development workflow is strong enough then then while things may take longer they're never going to take so long if that makes sense. Because if you're mm-hmm. working with a good, well-refacted, well-tested code base from day one, okay, initially, in, you know, in the early days, it will be slow to get going. But once you get into a flow, you'll be faster mm-hmm. than later on, you know, based on all the stuff that we've discussed through reading you know, this book in 99 Bottles. Mm-hmm. So actually, I am a big fan, I think, for all the testing and, and refactoring as you go along, Yeah. no matter what your environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the last scenario we talk about where it makes sense not to refactor, and I really like this example a lot, is when you are refactoring for academic purposes. And this is when you just philosophically disagree with how something is implemented. Um, And I like this a lot because I I feel, you know, part of my reluctance to share code with, you know, people who 
I'm not like friends with or, you know, I don't work with or I don't know on a, on a close basis is feeling like they're going to look at it and go, I would totally do this a completely different way and my way is so much better. Um, and so I appreciate the idea that this is not a good reason to redo someone's work. It's not a good reason to spend the time to refactor and figure out how to do it. It should be, when you refactor, it should be because there is a clear business reason for doing so. It's because refactoring will help you deliver working software, not improve on something on a personal belief basis. I'm glad you raised your your personal example of you know being afraid because people might say oh I wouldn't do it like that because I think one of the things that they missed in this section which I was surprised by was the fact that apart from the priority being that you need to create working software um, and how you may not actually improve the quality of the code when you're changing it for academic reasons I think it can have a really negative effect on your team dynamic if you've particularly mm. you know if you're working with other people mm-hmm. and you've just looked at code and have no good reason beyond I don't like it that way and you just change it and I've heard yeah, stories from people who've yeah. been on the receiving end of that and it's really not nice because there's no mm-hmm. there's no justified occasion I just don't like what you've done and I think it can be really awful for the team dynamic when people do that yeah yeah that's a really good point yeah So next we talk about refactoring and design. And here, so this is really interesting because I didn't really think of refactoring and design as two things that went together. Like they were kind of just two very different things to me. And so here we talk about how refactoring has a special role as a complement to design. And specifically the authors talk about how when they first when they first coded without any type of refactoring, they spent a lot of time upfront working on the design, playing with different models and examples and trying to kind of figure out what was the best way of solving this problem. And then they would code and implement that idea. And it was interesting because one of the um, one of the quotes here from Alistair Cockburn, co-developer of the Agile Manifesto, says that with design, I can think very fast, but my thinking is full of little holes. And mm. so refactoring comes into play because when you're refactoring you are building and tweaking and then building and tweaking and going back and forth between those two hats so in a way you're kind of filling in those holes and hopefully even having less holes in the beginning as you code so you're not in a situation where you are doing all this work up front and you have this beautiful idea and then you code and it makes no sense you code the first solution that comes to mind and then you slowly tweak it and shape it and mold it into a better solution as you go along one of the things that they say is that although you could just take the only refactoring approach it's not the most efficient and even the programmers who follow the extreme agile methodology very religiously do do some design first whether that's sketching out you know class responsibility cards and sketching out how the different objects react to one another or you send messages between one another that is some form of design which is still very useful to have in the process yes yeah and I like that too because to me it's 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 really hard to wrap my brain around this idea that I'm going to just start coding the first thing that comes to my mind like that just that sounds terrible. Um, but the idea of kind of sitting, you know, with a pen and paper or a whiteboard and, and or, you know, just typing out a couple ideas and then getting to a place where I say, okay, my, you know, my hunch is that this is going to be a good place to start. And then molding it from there feels like a nice balance. And so the important thing is the mindset, right? Because when you know that I've got this refactoring toolbox that I can go back to, you do the little bit of upfront design, you know, the sketches on the cards, but you know that 
well, I've got this approach that means that I won't be, I'll never be too far wrong because, I, I, you know, the risks are going to be minimized because I'm going to keep going to keep doing the refactoring as I go along. And I think even mm-hmm. in this section, they talk about this idea. They say flexible solutions are more complex than simple ones. But mm-hmm. you can't just straight away build a flexible solution because what right. like, what are all the things that that would entail? So the question to say is, okay, I'll start with a simple solution and how difficult is it going to be for me to refactor that into a flexible solution? And similar to the, the question we had before, if it's, if it's pretty easy, then just go with a simple solution and bit by bit you'll mm-hmm. add in or you'll refactor in the flexibility that you need. Yep. So the rest of this chapter is about optimizing your code and what role refactoring has in that. And so there's three sections. Uh, The first is called It Takes a While to Create Nothing, which is a story of, I think this part is written by Ron Jeffries, if I'm understanding Mm -hmm. this correctly. Uh, And it talks about how Ron Jeffries and Ken Beck and Martin Fowler decided or were working on this pay process tool, the Chrysler Comprehensive Compensation Pay Process, and that it was running (laughs) too slow and they were trying to figure it out and trying to see what the issues were. And it sounds like Ron went through a bunch of ideas and because he was very familiar with the system said oh i'm pretty sure i know what these things are and and shared uh some of the possible designs for improvement without actually measuring what was going on to begin with and they found out that they were totally wrong that the issues that they thought were the problem actually weren't the problem at all and so the lesson here is if you have a problem with performance don't speculate just measure it there are tools to actually measure the uh, the performance of your code Yes, and this is a lesson that we've heard many times, right? So we should never fall for yeah. this one. <laughs> yes. So then we have a discussion around three approaches that we can take to write fast software. So the first of these is called time budgeting. And so I think this is where you break down your system into all its different components and you say, you give each of them a budget for time. And then you just focus on making sure that none of your systems ever exceed that budget. And I think this is something that they say, you know, there are certain systems where this is vital. So for example, if you're making a heart pacemaker, you really need up-to-date data. But for the general software that we're building, it's definitely probably not the right approach. (laughs) Yes. So then we have the constant attention approach. And this is where every programmer who's working on the system all the time does whatever they can to keep performance high. But again, this is something that doesn't work very well. Because if you're continually trying to improve performance, then you're usually not focusing on, you know, all the other good stuff that we've discussed that we want in our programs. Mm -hmm. And so and so then this ends up slowing down development. You've got software that's harder to manage and work with. And probably you might end up not really getting the performance gains that you want or that you could get if you took a different approach. Yeah. And it sounds exhausting. Yeah. Just constantly having to to code, refactor, and then to optimize kind of all in one breath feels feels like a little much. Must be faster, must be faster, must be faster all the time, <laughs> now. <laughs> so then we have the third approach, which is building your program in a well-factored manner without paying attention to performance until you begin a performance optimization stage. Hmm, that sounds pretty healthy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so this one is saying that, you know, you build, you, you build your your system and then you have a profiler and after each step in your refactoring you can test and rerun the profiler so you can see whether you've improved performance or not and if you haven't it's very important that you back out any change you made because it's done nothing so it's likely 
affected the design of your system or made something a bit harder to understand. But given that it's made no change on what your aim is, you should just undo it. Mm-hmm. And you keep doing that cycle until you get to the performance that you need. Yes. And so the chapter ends with going back to that payroll system in the optimizing a payroll system section. And here we have Rich Garzanidi. I was saying that right. Um, and we talk about that Chrysler comprehensive compensation system again and how when they actually ran the profiling tool, they found out that the biggest offender was the creation of strings and that there was a repeat creation of 12,000 byte strings that was happening. And so one of the things they did was cache it and they were able to solve most of the problem and they did a bunch of other things around that. And the big lesson there is that using actual measurements to point out what the problems were was the most useful thing to do instead of being stuck on refactoring and optimizing as they went to saying okay let's let's pause use these tools really trust the technology to point out what the issues were that that was the better way of doing it indeed so in this chapter we touched on refactoring and design so we want to know how does refactoring affect your design do you still do a big design up front or does refactoring help you design less at the beginning tweet us your responses at ruby book club and tell us how you plan to use the takeaways from this episode in your next project see you next week cheerio